The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. What's up, everybody? Basketball Welcome back Society. to another episode of The Atlantic Files brought to you by BasketballSocietyOnline.com and the Underdog Sports Podcast Network, the number one podcast on the number one division in the NBA. And we are back. It is a brand new year. I know we did not have an episode over that new year week, but we are back this week. It is 2021. Still a lot of not great things happening in 2021 so far. However, at the beginning of the year, we have to see how it all plays out. Um, and as of right now, the NBA season going somewhat smoothly, still a little COVID scares, some people testing positive, whatever it may be, but not as bad as it could be so far. Um, so let's start off, as we always do, with the standings of the Atlantic Division. We have the Sixers in first at 7-2, and two, the Celtics in second at 6-3, and three, the Knicks, of all teams, in third at 5-3, and three. in fourth we have the Nets at 5-4, and four, and in fifth we have the Raptors at 1-6. and six. I just want to start off by saying, if you told me that the Raptors would only have one win through seven games... I would not have believed you. I know that they're not, you know, the team that they once were with Kawhi Leonard when they won the championship and everything. And I know they got they lost a couple people in free agency. However, I would never have assumed that they would be last in the division right now. Especially I wouldn't assume that the Knicks would be above two other teams. But I digress. I actually want to start off with the Sixers this week. They before they lost last night to the Nets. They did have the number one record in the league. They were 7-1 and one at that point. Um, they were looking like a well-oiled machine for pretty much every game except the one that Joel Embiid missed. And their game against Washington was actually very interesting because their offense was firing on all cylinders, but their defense wasn't really stopping anything. And that was attuned to the fact that you saw Bradley Beal put up a career high and tie the Wizards franchise record in points in a single game with 60. Um, there's a couple things, though. Seth Curry is looking like one of the best additions to the Sixers non-superstar or star-wise in a long time. Obviously, the additions of Tobias Harris and Jimmy Butler are a little bit bigger than the addition of Seth Curry. Um, I know Jimmy Butler's not there anymore, but that's beside the point. I'm just saying in, in terms of uh, impact uh, from addition. So Seth Curry, I mean, especially in that Wizards game, was completely on fire. He was very impressive pretty much the entire game. And it was refreshing to watch as a, you know, uh, a, a Sixers fan that has seen the team go from not being able to shoot the ball ever in any single game throughout an entire season to to Seth Curry not even missing a three until I think it was like the third or fourth quarter. Um, so that was really nice to see. But this the five game winning streak that they were on really kind of changed the perception of this team after that like the first three games because 
For me, when I watched the first three games, the Sixers kind of looked like the same team that they did last season. There was a lot of inconsistency, guys that kind of like tried at some points but didn't try at other points. Um, when Embiid was off the floor, the team looked horrid. Ben Simmons looks the same, doesn't look like he really improved all that much. So there wasn't much to really say. It just was like, oh, there's some new faces, and then that's about it. But the rest of the team doesn't look great. Then they hit the five-game win streak where Tobias looked amazing. Um, Embiid was, I mean, still is on an MVP level. Seth Curry not missing. Danny Green playing some good basketball. Shake Milton looking like six-man of the year. Tyrese Maxey putting in some very quality minutes. Dwight Howard playing a great backup center. I mean, everything was looking good except, I would say, Ben Simmons' offense. Um, Don't get me wrong. His distribution is definitely needed on the team, especially now that there are more shooters. Um, But it's still just the eye test just kind of shows that the ball sticks too much when when Ben Simmons is on the floor without Embiid. And it seems that he just really slows it down too much, even though his strength is getting out in transition. Whenever he's in the half court, it just doesn't look as fluid. The, the offense just doesn't flow as much. It doesn't have as much, you know... Uh, the ball itself isn't as mobile. Um, but when you have Embiid, even though with Embiid you get a lot of post-ups where he's just down in the post and the ball's not moving, it still seems to move more often than it does when Simmons is on the floor. And I'm not even trying to say this in terms of, you know, a, a dig at Ben Simmons. Um, it's just like kind of questioning like what exactly is happening here and when is he going to start shooting more he did make a three in one of the games that was nice in that game him and Dwight Howard both made a three which if like if you put a bet on like throughout their entire careers if there was somewhere that made a bet if they would make a three in the same game I would have said no for their entire careers. <laughs> so it's amazing that that even happened. Um, but you saw how difficult it is for this team to create offense when Embiid is not on the floor. In their game against Cleveland, they just could not get anything going at all. They couldn't get any sort of run or anything. And if they did make a couple shots in a row, Cleveland was there to just oust that and then go on their own run. Cleveland, fin- I mean, destroyed them from start to finish. The defense was still okay, but the offense just looked like straight hot garbage. Um, Dwight Howard is definitely not built for starters minutes. He is a very, very, very good backup. And I think that right now, which I'm not saying he wants to be a starter. I don't think that he has the mentality of, oh, I should be starting. But when you see him starting and get starters minutes when Embiid is out, you can tell, yeah, this guy should be a backup. He should not be starting. He should not be getting all those minutes. So, you know, just play that role he's very good at his role and he should stick at that role um it's a little worrying that Matisse isn't getting much playing time I think that really shows that his offense must not have grown much and when he is out on the floor it does look like that um and he's really only been on the floor for 
key defensive moments, which Matisse is a very good defender. But the fact that people keep saying he's an elite defender already at this stage of the game is just not true. Like, we need to stop boosting up what his defense really is right now because an on-ball defender is not exactly the greatest role for him right now because when he's playing on ball, a lot of the times he allows guys to go right past him and his recovery sometimes saves him, but a lot of the time doesn't. He then gets stupid fouls. People get foul shots. He tries to block balls from behind where they're most likely calling a foul a lot of the time. Um... He plays passing lanes well. He does do that. Sometimes he does um, anticipate the ball handler's moves very well and gets steals out of that. However, he's not as good of the uh, defender as a lot of Sixers fans and a lot as a lot of Matisse truthers might say. And listen, I love Matisse, but there's a lot of things he still has to improve on. While he did have a couple great defensive plays, the average of it all is an above average defender but not elite we gotta stop saying elite we gotta stop saying like all these people are elite at this elite at that elite at this elite is for you know like the top 15 top 20 people leave it for that um and then the other thing is i just want to say if you don't have Embiid in your top three I personally say if he's not top two, it's ridiculous, but I'll give you top three. If Joel Embiid is not in your top three for MVP race so far, your MVP um, leaderboard, ladder, whatever it may be, is irrelevant and it is garbage. Because Joel Embiid, if you look up at the if you look up the stats, the plus and minuses and everything, he has the best plus minus for his team. His the team's offense is exponentially better with him on the floor the defense is better with him on the floor and you can tell the team itself plays with a much lighter and much more energetic style of play when Embiid is there when rather than when he's not and to me even though the Nuggets don't have a winning record at the moment to me if you don't have Jokic and Embiid in that top three again irrelevant and garbage the only the the third person i mean you can move people around but i would probably say it's either lebron or luka Doncic. in that i mean they could be in the top three as well but if you don't have Jokic or Embiid in that top three throw that throw that list out just just throw it out because nobody wants to see it So, moving on to the Brooklyn Nets. So, the Brooklyn Nets are in the top five in offense, which shouldn't be a surprise when you have two guys like Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Um, But the defense is giving up a ton of points. They're giving up around like 111, 112 points per game. Um, Losing Dinwiddie is a huge hit for this team. That was... I don't want to say that that is going to really, you know, diminish their championship value. He is definitely important to them, like, in a championship uh, mindset, in, in winning the championship. However, I think that 
they can still do this without Dinwiddie. It's just going to be a little more difficult. That's all it is. Um, the, I think the biggest thing that they'll find is when Durant and Kyrie need rest or just Kyrie in general, they're going to lose a little bit. Now, the only thing is with their game against the Sixers, they actually blew out the Sixers. And that was without Durant or um, Kyrie. Uh, Dinwiddie obviously not there being hurt. So uh, they still have the ability to put up a lot of points without them. However, I think it definitely limits the ceiling. So I think that that's going to be a storyline to definitely look at. Um, I think the other storyline is definitely going to be, will Durant and Kyrie continue to be, you know, like buddy-buddy, good friends throughout the entire season? Or will one wear on the other's patience and, you know, get to them with um, whatever it may be, like sitting out for different reasons or, you know, not playing up to the ability that they think they can or making weird decisions or whatever it may be. No, I'm not directing this at only Kyrie. If that's what you're thinking, I am directing it at both because, hey, you, anyone can get upset with anyone. It's just a matter of if you can keep that in check. Um, there's still a lot of games that it takes them, you know, like a lot of firepower to finally win. Uh, like, Against the Atlanta Hawks, it took a huge fourth quarter outburst from Kyrie to finally beat them. Um, and they're just a question. It's just questionable if they face a high powered offensive team because while the Nets are going to get theirs, Durant and Kyrie are going to get their points. They're going to put up a lot of points, especially with Karis Levert there. Um, the question is can they finally limit the other team? Because if the other team is a big time uh, offensive team, then. It's literally just going to become a shootout that they just have to desperately put up as many shots as they can and try and get as many points as they can. And if they're not on that night, they probably will lose because this team is not leading anything with their defense. They're not going to win a game off of defense, essentially. And even though they have some good defensive bigs, it's really the wings and the guards that you don't get as good a defensive play from. So, I think that that is going to be something to definitely watch out for. All right, so the Boston Celtics. Jalen Brown has been playing like a man possessed. I mean, Jalen Brown, this has been like easily Jalen Brown's best season so far. Uh, it's been really fun to watch him. His shooting has been great. His confidence, I think, you can really see has been, you know, through the roof. And he's taking a lot more shots, making a lot more, or, or capitalizing on a lot more opportunities. Uh, his defense is still good. His defense has always been pretty good. And you can see him distributing the ball a little bit more as well. There's been a growing question whether, you know, who's better, Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. And I was actually, I was listening to the Rights of Ricky Sanchez podcast with uh, Spike Eskin and Mike Levin. And they proposed uh, Jalen Brown versus Brandon Ingram, which I think is a very interesting question. So let's compare all three, shall we? So Jalen Brown is scoring 26 a game, uh, 5.4 rebounds, 3.3 assists, 1.7 steals, while shooting 50, we'll, we'll round these. So 55% from the floor, 41% from three, 73% from the free throw line, and a 24.8 PER. 
That is player efficiency rating for the people who are wondering. Then we have Jason Tatum at 26.3. So Tatum's at 26.3 points per game. Brown is at 26.2. Tatum has seven rebounds, four assists, one steal a game. 47% 47% from the floor, 45% from three-point, 89% from the free throw line, and 23.6 PER. So for, for the people uh, keeping score back home, Tatum does have the very, very slight edge in points, a about a two-rebound a game advantage, less than a one assist per game. Uh, he has less steals per game than Jalen Brown does. Shooting... Around, uh, like eight percent. Um, wow, I can't do math right now. He's shooting around, yeah, around eight percent, uh, better than Jalen Brown, or sorry, eight percent less. <laughs> sorry, than Jalen Brown per uh, from the floor, but he's shooting four percent better from three, a little bit better from the free throw line, and a uh lesser per. Then we throw in Brandon Ingram, who is putting up 24.9 points per game, seven rebounds, five assists, and less than a steal per game, 46.3 from the floor, 37 from three, 85 from the free throw line, and then 23.4 PER. So, out of all of these, if I had to rank them right now, see, the the other thing that you need to keep into account is the fact that Jalen Brown is actually averaging one less shot attempt per game than Jason Tatum, while only being 0.1 points per game away from him. I think that's big in and of itself because you look at the efficiency. Yes, Jalen Brown's shooting about, I think it's like three threes less than Jason Tatum, but from the floor, he's still shooting 54.7%. That is in and of itself, is amazing. Now, yeah, you can say, oh, he might regress to the mean. Um, you know, that th- he probably will come back to, to earth with these percentages. But if we take a look here, so last year from the floor, he shot 48%, still a very, very good percentage, and shot 38% from three. He's actually shooting a little less threes per game, but making them at the same uh, amount per game. And then he actually is attempting four more shots a game with the higher percentage. And his shooting percentage uh, from the floor in total has gone up every single season. He started at 45, then got to 46.5 the next two seasons. Then he was 48.1 last year and now 54.7 this year. So Jalen Brown's offense, you got to give it to the guy, has been very, very, very much improved. Tatum. We all know what Tatum gives you on offense. I mean, this guy has a plethora of dribble moves. He can get you off the bounce, off the catch, driving in the lane, in the mid-range, in the post, whatever you want to do. Jason Tatum can give you that. I mean, the guy's also putting up four assists a game, too. So he's he's still dishing the ball a little bit as well. Um, so if you... Here's the thing. I like Jalen Brown in a more two-way area than I like Jason Tatum. But as the de facto leader, I would still take Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum gives you a lot more 
of an arsenal on offense. He gives you a lot more, you know, wiggle room with like who you can build around him because of that as well. And I just think that, you know, with Jason Tatum's skills, how much he has grown every time, I think that he gets the slight edge from me. But I would take Jalen Brown over Brandon Ingram. Yes, Brandon Ingram has improved a lot, but his shooting percentages and everything still aren't uh, up to snuff with Tatum or Brown. Um, Brandon Ingram has definitely improved in you know all three levels of scoring, but also on defense, I would still take Jalen Brown. On hustle plays, on heart, on grit, on toughness, I would still take Jalen Brown. And I just think all around, I just see Jalen Brown as a better leader than than Brandon Ingram. And he does all the intangibles better. But also, when we look at these stats, most of them are favoring Jalen Brown. Uh, Brandon Ingram gets a little bit more rebounds per game, but at the same time, Jalen Brown plays more two guard than he does like three or four. And then assists, Brandon Ingram is above him by two, but then you have Jalen Brown almost has two steals a game and Brandon Ingram doesn't even have close to one. And then shooting percentages all favor Jalen Brown except for free throw. And then his player efficiency rating also better. Defensive ratings better. And offensive rating is, I think, around the same if I'm not mistaken I would have to check that but all in all I think I would take Jay I would think I would rank it Tatum Brown Brandon Ingram in terms of who I would want or who I think is better at, at also um the last thing I want to say about the Celtics is Peyton Pritchard has been proving me wrong I was critical of that pick and everything, and I'm glad he is balling out. I'm glad he's proving me wrong, to be honest. I don't want anyone to fail for anyone who thinks that. Um, so I'm glad he's he's proving me wrong. He hit a game winner the other night. He's been great on the team. Everyone, all the uh, veterans and stuff on the team love him, it looks like. Looks like a really good locker room kind of guy. And, I mean, he gives... He gives the team something when Kemba's not there. And with Peyton Pritchard doing well, with Teague, you know, doing decent as a backup and everything, they also still have Tremont Waters there, who I think should be given more of a shot than he has been. Does this beg the question, should the Celtics trade Kemba or continue to try and have him, you know, on the team to compete for the championship because the team still looks decent without Kemba. And we're not denying the fact that Kemba is a great offensive player. He's a very, very, very good offensive player. I mean, had like 23 points per game for them or whatever it was last season. Don't get me wrong, but he is injury prone. He is undersized, which so are the other point cards that they have, to be honest. He's not the distributor type, which I think this team would benefit more from. So do you look into trading him when he finally does get healthy? Maybe he has a few good games and like raises his value back up. Do you try and trade him to someone that is competing maybe in the Western Conference? 
maybe you package him in something that maybe you try and get Harden. Although I don't think Houston would really want Kemba and something else. They probably want some of the younger guys, especially either Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. I would not trade either one of those for Harden if I was Boston because those are you know, that's a young core right there. But I think it begs the question, should you trade Kemba? And I don't think that... I don't know. I... I don't see it being a bad move to try and trade him. I just don't. All right. So the last thing I want to touch on is the Knicks. Tibbs is really turning this whole team around. The locker room around, everything, the culture. The defense is hugely improved. Third-ranked defense in the league, by the way. Uh, Julius Randle is looking like an all-star. He is playing 38 minutes a game. So we're going to see... (laughs) where that leads um but he's putting up 23 points 12 rebounds seven assists a game he is averaging 4.9 turnovers which is a big i mean negative however if you're gonna let the man cook let the man cook uh 48.5% 48.5% from the floor, 34% from three, and a 19.1 PER. Obviously, the PER is lower because of all those turnovers. RJ Barrett is growing a little bit. He's, I mean, he's, he's getting there. He has 17 points a game, seven rebounds a game, three assists, one steal, only 1.8 turnovers, but he's still shooting 38% from the floor and 21% from three. Awful percentages. Putting up those numbers mainly because of volume, but awful percentages i mean yes that's definitely something you can improve on you can definitely get more efficient as time goes on however that is awful man that is just woo, woo. 11 and a half per by the way um alec burks before the injury and austin rivers have both turned out to be very nice additions for the team especially austin rivers i mean it gives them a point guard that actually knows what he's doing so that is always a plus for the knicks um but however obviously they're still in need of a floor general they're in need of a big time point guard hopefully that's something they can get in this draft coming up however I will keep shouting out Emmanuel quickly because he has been somebody that I have had faith in and he has been delivering so far. And I think Knicks fans in general will end up loving quickly uh, as his career goes on. And the last team that we didn't really talk about that much is the Raptors because they're one and six. Um, Pascal Siakam is a, a little worrisome right now, to be honest with you. And any of you who have listened to this podcast know I am a Pascal Siakam fan, but he's shooting a huge like almost 10 percent worse on layups this year compared to last year um he's been trying to like force a lot of things and get and try and get fouls that he's not getting and it just looks all bad and van vliet's been a little shaky here and there uh lowry i mean is still giving you consistently what he gives you the front court though is very limited and one-dimensional and i think that's where you see the big hole of abaka and marcus all not being there and that's an issue i mean let's not also discount the fact they're playing in tampa bay instead of toronto i think that is uh, they're going to say it's not an excuse but however i think that still plays a lot of things subconsciously and i think it's just something you can't discount that's something that uh, that's still something that's big so we got to look at that too but 
That's it for me, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Atlantic Files, the number one podcast on the number one division in the NBA. Make sure you check out basketballsocietyonline.com as well as the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. Thank you guys for listening, and I'll catch you guys next week. Peace.